Hi, this is T. Morris, and you're listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Hi there, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. I am Erin Kazmark, your grill mistress, and welcome to episode 54 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin, and I'm sick. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, don't worry, I'm not touching any food today. Good. You, you, you need to, like, wear a mask or something. Uh, yeah, don't breathe on me. I won't. Even though I gave it to you. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate Best it. friends share things. Uh-huh. Aw, oh, poor sicky. Yeah, well... I can still, I can still episode. I can, you can, you can episode. I can episode. So what do we have in this episode? This is an episode that's not going to be like any one we've ever done before. Like any episode we've ever done before or any one we've ever done before? Any one episode we've ever done before. This, Ooh. we've got something that is almost beyond description. Almost, but not completely. Yeah, because we do stoke the fire stories uh-huh. and we have our prompts for mm-hmm. them. And, and we've had people do main ingredients based on prompts. Yeah, and we've actually had a couple of stories that have touched on more than one prompt. Mm-hmm. This goes above and beyond that. Really? We have had a story that has been sitting in our queue for the better part of a year at this point. Mm-hmm. Because, because it was so unbelievably singular in its construction that I was waiting for the right story to pair it with. Because it is a stoke the fire. Yeah. Well, and I'll explain why in just a second, but I finally have the perfect story to go with it because it's by the same author. Ah, we, we <laughs> nice. Have, we have a word chef, a a gentleman who is absolutely fantastic, who at some point in time last year sent me a story that hit on not one, not two but eight prompts. Eight? A Stoke the Fire story that touches on eight prompts. Well, damn. Yeah. So you can see why I was having trouble placing it. It was, it was, yeah. it, I mean, it could go with anything, but I didn't want to sell it short. Mm-hmm. Well, not long ago, he sent me another, he sent us another story. And? Five prompts. Five <laughs> Good gosh. Overachiever much? Yeah. Now, keep in mind, in the three and almost a half years that we have been running the Melting Podcast, we have had a grand total of 14 prompts. The 15th Mm -hmm. prompt will be releasing on January 1st, 2018. 14 prompts. He has touched on 12 of them. Now, Now, I know what you're saying. Hang on. Eight and five equals 13. He touched on 13. No. He one prompt is actually in both stories. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. So of all the fourteen prompts that we have ever released, there are only two that have not been included in these two stories. Wow. Yeah. So I'm calling this our Stoke the Fire in Review segment. Yes. This is probably only ever going to happen one time, but I cannot believe it has happened at all. This is not something that we asked for. This is just something that he did. So we're going to give you two Stoke the Fire stories back-to-back. These are by the same author. 
But we have to tell you which prompts that he touches on. Yes. So, prompt number two. A common household object isn't what it seems. Prompt number four. The company has just received an order of fledges. They did not order these. Prompt number five. Something in the bathroom is your character's spiritual leader or confidant. Prompt number six. Why is everyone afraid of the mailman? Prompt number seven. Write a story featuring a member of the podcast crew as a main character. Prompt number eight. Aliens have given you a super sense. How do you use it? Prompt number nine. You wake up alone at night with bite marks on your legs. What's eating you? Prompt number ten. An animal from outside your local ecosystem has entered nature and is breeding uncontrollably. Which is the one that both stories include. Oh my god. Yes. So those are all the prompts that are in story one. Story two includes, again... Uh, the ecosystem animal, prompt 10, as well as prompt number 11. The empanadas you just took out of the oven exploded and something alive is emerging. And prompt number 12. Write a story featuring some kind of mystic cheese. Prompt number 13. Where did the corn go? And prompt number 14. A rash of people have just entered the emergency room, all of them exhibiting superpowers. So, in short... Not short. Not short. Enjoy these two stories, or Stoke the Fire in review. Bon appetit. A Potluck Podcast by Jason Goodman Theo was woken up by a warm, biting sensation spreading up from his legs. He whipped the sheets off his body, glaring at the dark shapes that quickly fled out of sight. Dang it, Aaron! Theo shouted, rubbing his legs, which were, of course, unmarked. I thought you were going to get rid of those darn fledges. How would you like me to do that? Aaron retorted as she came into the room. Call the department for imaginary infestations? You know that ever since the great gifter sent us that orb through galactic post and enhanced my sense of touch, I can't stand it when things crawl on me. Theo whined, continuing desperately rubbing at his clean legs. Yes, dear, I know. Aaron sat down on the bed and started gently rubbing her husband's back. How do you think I feel about my gift? I can taste things from a mile away, the pretty grill mistress grimaced. Have you ever tasted a poopy diaper? The dish boy leaned his head against his wife's shoulder and finally started to calm down. I'm sorry, honey. It's just these stupid fledges crawling on me at night. It feels like I'm being devoured from the legs up. Have you had any luck finding out where these pesky creatures came from? Aaron asked. No idea, said Theo. The mailman just dropped off the crate one day. They escaped as soon as I opened it and started breeding like mad. Ever since, they've been doing nothing but crawling all over the house, eating our chocolate, and harassing us while we sleep. First galactic non-gifts by way of alien delivery boys, and then fantastical creatures by way of UPS, mused Aaron. It's almost making me scared of the mail, or mailmen, anyway. Have you tried asking Lord Flush? Theo inquired wrapping his arms around his wife and then backing off quickly, shaking his arms as if shocked. Maybe he knows what we could do. I was just in there, Aaron said. Outside of the usual gurgle and splurt, Lord Flush isn't talking to us. After all the praying that we've done to our porcelain god, you'd think he'd be more helpful. Hey, at least the toaster still works. Aaron led the still twitchy Theo back into the kitchen, 
He was trembling slightly as she sat him down at their kitchen table. Remember our brave little toaster? Aaron took the toaster off the counter and put it in front of her trembling husband. Immediately, the toaster started to pulsate with a soft, cool, blue glow. Two eyes popped open on the side and immediately filled with concern upon seeing Theo. The little toaster waddled over to the upset dish boy and started purring. The purr sounded like spoons rattling together, but it vibrated over Theo's skin in a calming wave. For a while, the couple just took comfort in their pet's soothing presence. The sound of a car in their driveway brought both of their heads up. Theo immediately started to panic. Please don't be the mailman, he whispered. We can't deal with another delivery. It became a chant for him. Please don't be the mailman. Please don't be the mailman. Shh, Aaron's whisper felt like a soothing breeze across Theo's face. It's just AF. Theo looked up. How do you know what AF tastes like? It's not like the recording booth is a mile across, you know. Aaron giggled a little bit. It's not like I look forward to it. He actually tastes a little like old bologna. Aaron got up and headed to the front door. After a second, Theo scooped up the purring toaster and followed her. The grill mistress opened the door to see her longtime friend standing there, puzzling over a sheaf of papers in his hand. Hi! Aaron greeted her podcast partner perkily. What are those? Oh, hi, Aaron. A.F. looked up. I found these stuck under your bushes. He handed the papers and a torn, bright yellow envelope to the lady of the house. The papers look like receipts and return labels for some place called Imagine Animals Incorporated. This yellow envelope looks like the same from some place called the Galactic Gift Center. What are... Aaron? Theo? Both of his friends had passed out. Corn Duration by Jason Goodman Everyone has a favorite food. For most children, it's something simple, like chocolate cake or spaghetti or hamburgers. Some, as they grow older, get more sophisticated taste buds and will start preferring foods like lobster, salmon, or chicken parmesan. When these kids become adults, their taste buds evolve even further, and they start praising foods like mushu pork, escargot, or beef wellington. Such was not the case for Chico del Mays. For Chico, it was always about the corn. From the first day he could eat, Chico's favorite food never changed. On the cob, off the cob, creamed, fried, yellow or red, Chico loved his corn. When Chico was a child, and even as an adult, his favorite Christmas movie was Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He always laughed at the part of the movie when the winter warlock corrects Jessica to call him just Winter, if you please. Really, what kind of name is Winter anyway? But the scene that he really got worked up over was when Jessica asks Winter if he has any magic left to get Chris out of jail. All I have, Winter complains, is this magic corn that makes reindeer fly. All you have? Chico would think, sometimes out loud. What do you mean, that's all you have? That's awesome magic! It's magic corn, for crying out loud. And who wouldn't want to learn how to fly? Chico became obsessed with the thought of making his own magic flight, and he knew corn 
was the key. His shelves became lined with books like Cthulhu Cuisine, mostly seafood involving ingredients he couldn't pronounce, the Cauldron Cookbook, good recipes but most required three cooks, Magical Meals, this one surprisingly had nothing to do with real magic, and Eating with Elementals, quite informative. He would spend his time after school experimenting in the kitchen, and you could often hear his mother exclaim before dinner, Where has all our corn gone? Chico, get in here! Despite not learning how to fly, Chico became quite a good cook as he grew up. He learned to conjure up any number of soups or chilies without dirtying any pots. Not all of his experiments resulted in a satisfying meal, however. One time, he tried combining recipes from pagan pastries with some spells he'd read from Santeria's sauces, and the results were catastrophic. Apparently, the two religions were not compatible, like mint and citrus. It hadn't been ten minutes after Chico had put the empanadas in the oven when he heard bang, bang, bang coming from the kitchen, followed quickly by his mother's cry of, Chico, get in here! Chico charged into the kitchen to see his mother on the counter, looking like she'd climb to the ceiling if she could. At first, it just looked like Chico's empanadas had spilled on the floor, but then he saw one trying to slowly crawl up the wall. The brown pastry was covered with hard yellow nodules, and a little orange head poked out of the front. Somehow, the corn had become like a shell. Thankfully, the turtle panadas weren't very fast, and it was easy for Chico to scoop them up with a spatula and fling them into the fields out back. Chico didn't have the heart to dump them into the garbage disposal. He just hoped that they wouldn't breed outside and get out of control. He had hoped dinner would be corn-filled empanadas that would make him fly, and ended up with Burger King. Again. Even when he became an adult... Chico's desire for flying corn had not diminished. Dimmed, maybe, as he ran out of recipes, but he would still keep his eye out for new ingredients that he thought might be the secret to unlocking the magic in the corn. One day, Chico was poking around the local Mystic Mart, gathering his ingredients to make another batch of cornbread. Griffin eggs? Check. 2% milk? Check. He already had the cornmeal waiting at home. He had grounded himself at midnight under the light of a full moon. What could that missing ingredient be? Bat's wing? No, he tried that and ended up sleeping upside down for a week. Bald eagle feathers? No, that just made the cornbread taste foul. He was walking through the dairy section when he spotted a bright red package wedged between the Swiss and the cheddar. Holy Jesus! Add a little miracle to your meal! the label proclaimed. Chico looked around to see if there were any free samples of this new kind of cheese, but didn't see any. Well, a little miracle was just what Chico needed, so he grabbed a package of holy cheeses and tossed it into his basket. When he got home, Chico made sure to sprinkle copious amounts of the holy cheeses over the cornbread just before it finished baking. He even poked some deep into the bread itself, so its flavor would permeate the whole pan. As he did so, he remembered the Winter Warlock's final prayer at Jessica and Chris's wedding. Oh, please, Holy Jesus, 
Chico prayed. Let me have just a little magic. As the cornbread baked, the kitchen was filled with aromas that could only be described as heavenly. Chico was so eager for the timer to buzz that he almost forgot to put on his oven mitt before opening the door. The cornbread came out a perfect golden color, with subtle orange streaks running through it from the cheese. His hand trembled as he cut off a corner and brought it to his mouth. Oh, that was good cornbread. The holy cheeses had a mild flavor that didn't overpower the taste of the cornbread itself. Instead, it almost seemed to purify it and make it taste more... wholesome. Chico licked the crumbs off his fingers and waited for something to happen. Nothing did. Not a total loss, Chico thought. This is the best cornbread I have ever made. Chico packed up the rest of the cornbread so he could bring it to the office the next day. Well, minus a couple pieces that he set aside for tomorrow's lunch. Chico's reputation as a cook had grown as he had. Those recipes that didn't result in catastrophe or cataclysm, Chico would often bring into work. His co-workers loved Chico chow days. The cornbread turned out to be no exception. Chico unwrapped the plate when he arrived at 9 a.m., and by 9.30, it was empty. Chico lost count of the number of people who poked their heads into his cubicle. Thanks, Chico. What's your secret? That bread is amazing, Chico. This tastes like the way my gram used to make it. You should enter this bread into the county fair. And so on and so forth. Chico would smile, truly glad that the failure on his part was still making his co-workers so happy. The next day was Saturday, and Chico spent it preparing for the company picnic. He made a big batch of cornbread which, unfortunately, used up the last of the holy cheeses. He would have to hit the market to get some more because he really wanted to see what else he could add it to. Lasagna? Chili? Pizza? The picnic went much like work had, except this time he was being thanked by his co-workers' families as well as his co-workers. Once again, he went home with totally empty plates. One eager child had even scraped up all the crumbs. On Sunday morning, Chico woke to a funny feeling and tried to roll out of bed, but couldn't. Couldn't because he was no longer in bed. Chico was floating about three feet above his sheets. He looked around in a panic for a second before it sank in. He was flying. He'd done it! Chico let out a whoop, thrusting his fist into the air. This somehow caused him to fly backwards, slamming his head into the wall, knocking him unconscious. When Chico came to, he was on the floor and his head was pounding worse than that time he had mixed gargoyle juice with his moonshine. Had it all been a dream? He looked up from the floor and saw the large hole three feet above his bed. No. Not a dream. He gingerly got to his feet. His vision blurred and he could feel blood dripping down his scalp. He didn't want another injury, but he had to know if he could still fly. Chico slowly got dressed and made his way to the backyard. He looked around to make sure nobody was watching and then stopped. How does one start flying? He braced his aching head, shut his eyes, and jumped off the deck. 
His eyes flew open when he didn't land. Yes! It was real, and the power was still there! His vision doubled and tripled, making his head swim worse. Even the sirens in the distance felt like spikes in his skull. He pulled himself back to the deck and tried walking. It seemed that, as long as his feet were on the ground, they would stay there. Good, Chico thought. Because I think I need a doctor. Chico called an ambulance, telling the operator that he had fallen off his deck and hit his head. The operator explained that all the ambulances were tied up at the moment, but somebody would be with him as quickly as possible. Was he sure that he couldn't drive himself to the ER? Yes, he was sure. When the EMT knocked at his door, Chico had been pacing back and forth. He was still very woozy, but he'd heard that it was a bad idea to sleep with a concussion. He also didn't want to practice flying when the EMT could come to his house at any moment. When he left the EMT inside, Chico saw that he'd come, not in an emergency vehicle, but a beat-up station wagon. The EMT sat Chico down on the couch and started checking his vitals and shining a light in Chico's eyes. What's going on with the ambulances? Chico asked to keep his mind off the painful light. It's craziness, man, the young EMT said. They had to call in all the off-duty EMTs and asked us to use our personal vehicles to respond to the emergencies. What, what emergencies? Oh man, the world has totally gone off the rails. It's like something out of a comic book. Huh? A comic book? Oh yeah, the EMT explained. The ERs are full of people with injuries like yours. But get this. They all claim they got them from flying. Can you believe it? At least you were honest enough to admit you fell off your deck, even if it did make you seem like a klutz. Chico was silent, but that didn't seem to matter to the young man. Then there are all these drunk drivers that popped up and got into accidents all at once today. They all said that they just drank water, but you could smell the wine on their breath. You know that you have it bad when you replace a saline IV with wine. The nurses still aren't sure how the patients did that. Water? Wine? There have been a rash of drownings, if you believe it. These kids claim they were just walking on, not around, but on the lake, when sploosh, they fell in and almost drowned. Um, Chico was dumbstruck. You're kidding? I kid you not, the EMT finished looking Chico over. All right, you don't seem to have a concussion as far as I can tell. If you're still dizzy in the morning, maybe the ERs will have cleared up. With all that's going on, I'd stay inside the rest of today anyway. Chico nodded and wearily led the young EMT to the door, thanking him for stopping by. He locked the door behind him and collapsed against it. He was remembering all the people at the company picnic the inventory and distribution departments that were having a contest to see which team could drink the healthiest by drinking the most water. The Johnsons, the Hammonds, and the Knights, who shared a laugh because they were all taking separate vacations at the same lake today. Then Chico went cold as he remembered the Britons. They had only stopped by the picnic for a short while because they needed to go to a funeral today. What power would manifest there? Chico sighed and headed for his kitchen. He had work to undo. 
That toaster. That toaster. But seriously. Just wow. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason, for both of those stories. Jason, Jason, Jason. I just can't even at this point. Uh-oh. I can't. You turned Gus into a basic white girl. Oh my What's God, happening here? I, I'm sick and where's, delirious. Where's your leggings and pumpkin spice latte? Okay, first of all, leggings, no, that's you. Right. Pumpkin spice latte, I drank it. Aw. It was delicious. Mine? I drank yours, too. <gasps> oh, you're sick. I guess I can forgive you. Yeah. Especially since I'm the one who got you sick. <laughs> yeah. Again. Sorry. Thanks for that. So. Best friends share everything. Yeah, no, we don't. Oh, right. Anyway, thank you again, Jason, for those two amazing stories. We hope you submit again because this was beyond fun. This was a blast. Yeah. So. That is, with the exception of two prompts, the entirety of our Stoke the Fire prompts. It, I, I just can't. Like you said before, can't even. Yeah, um, I, I don't really have a whole lot else to say at this point, except why don't why don't we just recover a little bit and go listen to a promo? I'm cool with that. Okay. Introducing Archivos, a new story development tool that allows writers and gamers to document the story elements of their settings map the relationships between those elements, and then display those connections through three unique interfaces. One of those interfaces is the timeline. Every event documented by the storyteller is displayed in chronological order on a scrollable timeline. Details for each event are available with the click of a mouse, including a summary of the event, the location, and the characters who were involved. Plus, like all of Archivos's display modes, the timeline is searchable and filterable, so you can explore the aspects of your story world that captures your imagination. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. You know, this uh, taco's a little bland. Where did you get tacos and why am I yawning? Sorry. Where did you get tacos? Disaster kitchen. Kitchen. I make things. But we have tacos? Yes, sweetie, you want a taco? I want a taco. Okay, you have a taco, but I'll warn you. It could use a little seasoning. It could, oh. Oh. I don't know if I want a taco now. Well, fortunately, we do have a little seasoning. Oh, we do? Excellent. We do indeed. Because I have a feeling you talked to someone with a magnificent accent. I, I did. I had the privilege of interviewing Pip Ballantyne, author of Chasing the Bard, Geist, and a lot of other things that we'll, we'll go into in the interview. But, uh, but yeah, I sat down on the Skype line with Pip, and here, here, here's the conversation. Enjoy. Hey, lexiconosaurs and word chefs, it's your head chef AF Grappin for another little seasoning, and I am on the Skype line with Philippa Ballantyne. Hi, Pip. Hello, everyone. Uh, Pip is the most prestigious author of Chasing the Bard, um, Digital Magic, and, of course, with T. Morris, the uh, Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. I know that's nowhere near everything that you've got, but that's the ones <laughs> I know off the top of my head. <laughs> that's okay. I, 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 somebody asked me the other day, how many books have you written? And I, I had trouble answering the question. It's, <laughs> it's got to that point. But, you know. Yeah, I've I actually had Aaron ask me that the other day. It turns out the answer is eight. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so I, so don't worry. I have to sit and count on 
you know, I'm almost to, done with two hands, so that's something. Yeah, cool. yeah, that's a, yeah. Once you get off the two hands situation, then you know, mm-hmm. um, you've real, made it. <laughs> yeah, real, real quick, just before we get started, Pip, if you want to give a little introduction on yourself, that's a little more uh, in depth. Let us know what's coming down the pipeline for you. That would be awesome. Um, I'm. Living in Manassas, Virginia with tea. Um, I was born and raised in New Zealand, though, and I've been here now seven years. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I, I worry about my accent. Uh, I write uh, – I've, I've, I'm a long-time podcaster. I started in 2006 with Chasing the Bard. Uh, no, sorry, with Weaver's Web, then Chasing the Bard. Uh, I write science fiction, fantasy, um, speculative fiction of all varieties. Uh, I started off my first uh, – big New York published book was uh, the Geist series, mm. uh, the books of the order. And then uh, we, I moved on to steampunk, which I absolutely adore. Well, it, I, speaking as a fan, that's some really good stuff. <laughs> and uh, just between you and me, I'm not going to edit this out, but you know, just between you and me, your accent's fine. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> I do worry. Now, one thing that we do here on the podcast is we have our one question every year that we like to ask to everybody. So I'm okay. going to lead off with this one. How do you cope with those times when you don't feel creative, but due to deadlines or personal goals, you have to be? Ah, well, actually, I have I have developed my own patented system that T does not believe is an actual thing, but it totally <laughs> is. It's called the creative nap. Now I'm I'm not I'm not just looking for a reason to lie down, um, but if I get if I get really stuck uh, and sometimes deadlines you know they they drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my little I have my little blankie and, and my and my sofa and my cat, and I just I I lay down and I try and I guess it's almost like a kind of meditation. Mm-hmm. Just try and relax, and then I just play my story through my head a bit like it's a, a movie I guess. Mm-hmm. And this, it's something about the relaxation, you know, like in shower. People often say that they have great ideas in the shower. Yep. It, it's something to do with just your body relaxing and just letting your mind, mm-hmm. you know, do its own thing. And I come up with, you know, that seems to be my new way of doing things. It's <laughs> just, it, it gets me through those sort of moments where I'm not sure what I want to write or where I'm, you know, where mm-hmm. it's going or anything. So... Suck it, T. It's an actual <laughs> thing now. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the shower thing because that totally works for me. So, yeah, T, it is completely valid. You leave the creative <laughs> nap alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that. Um, want to kind of go into – it occurred to me earlier today that you, you say that you do – you know, science fiction, fantasy, steampunk, it strikes me that you tend to do more historical fantasy because you bring a lot of historical figures into your writing. I mean, Chasing the Bard is centered around Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, in the Ministry series, you've got, oh my gosh, H.G. Wells and, and you know, multiple others. Wasn't wasn't Tesla in there? Or am I Tesla's thinking? in there, Edison's in there, H.H. Yeah. H. Holmes is in there. Oh, jeez, um, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a few. And of course... Um, my my favorite historical figure to bring in was uh, Kate Shepherd, who was the preeminent suffragette in New mm-hmm. Zealand, because New Zealand was the first country to give women the right to vote. Go New Zealand! <laughs> Yay! So what I wanted to ask is, how do you approach bringing those kinds of characters in? I mean, it's got to take a lot of research to get them at least somewhat accurate. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I used to be a reference librarian back in New Zealand before I went full time with writing, and I, you know, what my, my favorite thing is to find, if possible, images of the person. There's mm-hmm. something about seeing somebody's face mm-hmm. that gives you an idea of their character. Then, if you can find, uh, you know, if you can find biographies or autobiographies, even better mm-hmm. uh, about the person. I just think you take. If they're like a, a, a very public figure, try and read from a multiple different sources because every source will have its own bias and slight leaning. Mm-hmm. And um, and just try and imagine them. Also, you know, if if you really want to get into their heads, try and imagine that they're sitting opposite you and you're interviewing them and ask them, you know, what's important to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what are your goals? And you know, the the, the hard probing questions. And um, you know that way you get, I feel like you kind of get into their into their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go about you know deciding that you want to use somebody and and how do you pick who you want to use? Because I mean H.G. Wells was you know very I mean he fits right in with everything that you've done in the ministry, uh-huh. but you know he's not the only person who was doing that kind of thing uh, in that time period. So I mean how did you settle on on Wells? Oh Wells has got such a a character to him. Uh, he, he, I think in the steampunk world, we like to get into big characters, you mm-hmm. know, people that take up a lot of space. When we did um, Dawn's Early Light, we were just plugging in all the the uh, inventors and mad scientists. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we had um, Henry Ford, we had Tesla, we had the Wright brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I like to go for... Characters that are pivotal, characters that have a lot of uh, gumption, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of power behind them, um, and and those kind of people, when you drop them into a situation, they tend to move the action themselves. You almost don't have to plot with them because they they have their own natural momentum. So th- this is something that we did ask T, and I'm curious to hear your side of things. So the ministry – well, the ministry <laughs> books are a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find that working with you know, a collaborative on – on a collaborative project, how much is that different from working on something that is completely by yourself? Pros, cons, all that. Well, there are definitely – let's start with the pros, um, <laughs> <laughs> just to soften the blow. Um it's great to have – it's like having a second brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get stuck or, you know, you don't know where the how to take the plot or how to take a character, some of the best things that uh, T and I do writing-wise is just sit down and just bounce ideas between us. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of um, an organic sort of process that's got easier. Like when we started off doing Phoenix Rising, there was a lot more head-butting, I want to mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. But a, but as the world has developed and we've got a lot more comfortable with it, um, it, it's become one of the real joys of writing together is that, is that process. Um, and, it, and it's nice to have each other's strengths and weaknesses covered. Like, um, I'm sure T's probably mentioned this, but when we get to an action scene, I tend to go, hey, T, uh, make it good. <laughs> and... Uh, I think he I think he would probably say that he gives me the creepy stuff. You know, the um every every everybody thinks uh you know, and I am I, I do like to write creepy 
you know, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Fog, fog related <laughs> scenes, you know, you know, people lurking in the shadows. That's, that's my sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the cons. Well, the con, I guess, is that you're not in ultimate control of everything. Mm-hmm. But then when you're working with editors and, and things further down in the publishing process, you're also not completely in control. Right. Um, you have to take their considerations, at least superficially, <laughs> into, uh, into consideration. So, yeah, you have to share uh, everything. I mean, the right now T's upstairs working on the edits of uh, Operation Endgame, which is the final book. Yay. And yeah, so there are certain things that I can just I just edit straight away, and there are other things where I'm like I have to put that aside and come back and talk to T about that because it's more major. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not being the the king of the castle is probably, you know, the the, the real con, but also it's kind of a pro because. It challenges you as well, if you know what I mean. And, and I think if you can find somebody that you can argue about, about <laughs> with the situation mm-hmm. quite passionately about, you know, no, she has to die. No, she needs to live. Uh, <laughs> and then still walk away and still keep writing together. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of a magical thing. It, it is, uh, yeah. I've I've done a couple collaborative pieces, so I can definitely speak to how that's it's mm. it's like it's like being roommates. You know, there's always the potential that it's going to completely destroy a relationship. <laughs> yeah, well, both both T and I have in our dim dark pasts um, partnerships with books that have not gone well, mm-hmm. and uh, so I just told him, well, you you just needed to collaborate with a New Zealander, obviously. That's Obviously, what, and then you, and then you have to marry them. I'm sorry. Oh, it just not works. So that's my problem. Okay. <laughs> I've said that on panel before. I'm like, you know, you don't have to marry your collaborative partner, but it sure helps. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just. Yeah, that's not yeah. gonna work. My collaborative partner's already married, and uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I, I think I did this wrong. <laughs> yes. yes. No. You came at the wrong angle. <laughs> So if you could point me a little at a New Zealander, that'd be great. Oh. <laughs> we only have four million of them, so yeah. Um. Well, it's it's fine. Um, so again, this is something that I did ask T, but again, I just I love getting these these two alter, you know uh, alternative <laughs> perspectives. When you two do have a a massive disagreement, oh she needs to die, oh she needs to not die. How do you handle that? And you know I, I don't want to say who wins because you know the readers are the ones that win. Yeah. But... Well, I can I can actually. There's a, there's a specific one which is in uh, the Janus affair uh, where a character dies, mm-hmm. and it was a character that we both really liked. She was sort of a, uh, she was a, maybe even a tertiary character, secondary tertiary character, but she she'd become in the way of the ministry that we became very attached to her, mm-hmm. and uh, then T killed her. <laughs> <laughs> Now, everybody blames me for killing her, which is funny because it, it was his. And we did have – that was the biggest, I think, argument that we had. Uh, you know, the, another one could happen tonight. But um, <laughs> it was it was a case of he – we sat down and we discussed – he gave his thesis, will you, well, if you will, <laughs> of why she had to die. And, mm-hmm. and the reasons had to be – plot related it moves the plot it it, right. it exposes the villains you know it shows the villains character it ups the stakes for other characters and um 
I listened to those and then I said, but I like her. That was all I had. <laughs> and when you come down to those terms, it's like, okay, I, mm-hmm. you know, I have to realize that the, the, the plot has to be serviced for my, before my, uh, um, wishes and, 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 Mm-hmm. kind feelings for characters and as it played out in later books that actually worked pretty well mm-hmm. um so i you know we, we've all i think we've had probably sort of at least one or two major discussions about you know things that happened and we've we've chopped out chapters as well before because mm-hmm. you know there, there was there was a chapter in endgame that uh, I wrote, but he really liked, and I I didn't want to keep it, and he did, and it was, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, each chapter has to do like three things, and mm-hmm. this thing, this only did one. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> so we we took it out, and we might use it in a another book. Oh cool. So you you mentioned earlier that you know you tend to write the creepy stuff, and you tell T to make the action scenes good. Um, how do you, uh, you know, other than, you know, the main obvious playing to your own strengths, how do you, you know, assign who's going to be writing what, especially the parts that neither of you wants to write? Because there's always those scenes. <laughs> well, you know, it's a developing process and it's interesting to sort of look back and see how we wrote it, like in the first book, which was strictly I wrote Eliza and he wrote Wellington. Mm-hmm. And we kind of split up the little interlude scenes, of which there weren't as many in the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it's gone along, and we both kind of know both characters really well now, um, it's become more of a who-gets-to-it-first situation. <laughs> um, and there are, there are some scenes, like in, I'm just thinking about Endgame, where some interludes with some people where horrible things happen, and... Uh, I let T do those, you know. So I think we've both grown as writers in the various, what, uh, six, seven years since we started writing this. Mm-hmm. So I think not only has our roles and our knowledge of the characters in the world changed and matured, but we've also grown in our own creative art, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. And um, so we trust each other a lot more. So I, I don't feel like I did necessarily at the beginning, which was quite protective of Eliza. You know, I wanted yeah. to be inside her head and stuff. But along the way, I've learnt to trust T. Morris. Um, no boys allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Trice, yeah. <laughs> and, um, although, uh, you know, when we go back and uh, edit things, because we, we do our first drafts and then we edit each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. So when he's writing from Eliza's point of view, if there's something that I'm thinking or she should be thinking or doing right now, mm-hmm. I'll put that in. So, you know, that's another that's another good thing I missed out is editing each other's stuff as always mm-hmm. makes it richer, better. Absolutely. So what is I know, I know you said Operation Endgame is the the final book of the of the, at least the main series, because you do also have the, the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. Which yes. is that prequel side uh, adventure of the Ministry Seven? Yeah. Um, what's coming after Operation Endgame? Are you going to continue kind of exploring some side portions of the Ministry world, or are you are yeah. you finally splitting apart? Um, no, we're not. <laughs> no divorces. Well, oh. no, <laughs> That's done. No, because no, we've got the Ministry. <laughs> Who would take the Ministry? It's it, it's it's like a child that you can't split in half. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're doing. Uh, the sequel 
to uh, The Curse of the Silver Pharaoh, which is a YA steampunk. It's a bit more on the paranormal side. Uh, Eliza Wellington tended to deal with secret societies and, you know, mm-hmm. Illuminati kind of things going on. Uh, Verity and the Seven, uh, more paranormal. So we're writing that one. Actually, I might end up writing The Emerald Flame by myself with, you know, sort of additions by T, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how his time goes. But then we we tossed up a few ideas about other things we would want to do within the world apart from Verity, and we're pretty much going to the idea that Sophia might be our first, uh, probably will be our first spin-off novel, if Ooh. not a series. Um, we're probably going to call it Death and the Falcon. Um, Ooh, I like that title. Which, uh, yeah, it's either the series or the book. We'll, we'll have to see, but mm. we... We just love the world so much, and um, there's also been thoughts about uh, Eliza and Wellington at the sort of the period of World War One. Ooh, some uh, some sort of discussion about that, and then we were also thinking of Bruce and Brandon, who are also mm-hmm. uh, quite fun. So you know, we we once we get this book out, we'll probably turn around and start <laughs> on something. You know, something new. Um, I personally really like writing Sophia Del Morte. She's just <laughs> a heck of a fun to write. Um, and, you know, she reminds me a bit of um, Loki in, uh, in Thor Ragnarok. Oh, yeah. You know, she's, mm-hmm. she's done some bad things, but is she turning the corner maybe? I don't know. Like, you know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. She, she's not even sure yet. <laughs> she, I'm sure she's not sure. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. We are not – people have been complaining, you know, I was like, the last book is coming, and people are like, no! But I'm like, seriously, it's just Eliza and Wellington's current adventures are coming to an end. So as long as people keep enjoying them, um, and then we'll keep writing them because, you know, we just love the world and we love the the characters and we have so much of our lives invested in this world now. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to leave. I mean, when I finished um, – the books of the order that was hard and that was only four books uh and this is seven books you know and, and a and an anthology and, and a podcast and a role-playing game so yeah. I, I i think i think we've got uh, real estate in the ministry of peculiar occurrences world right now i, I think the jury's still out not <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, what about uh, you know personal projects? Is there anything that you are working on just on your lonesome right now, or is the ministry just taking up everything? No, I've I've been developing um, uh, a series for my agent to pitch, which is a uh, southern set in Southern Virginia in the current time period. So it's something a bit different for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also I, I feel after seven years in in Virginia that I I have a grasp of it enough to write for the first time about a setting in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's a small town with uh, ghosts and uh, it, it's, it's about three women and their friendship and, you know, them, them coming to terms with powers in Southern poor Southern Virginia. Mm. Um, and then, and then I'm uh, also doing a podcast. I don't know. I, I, I pitched this to T and he said, yeah, you should do it. And I was, I don't know if I was hoping for him to tell me not to do it, but he didn't. So <laughs> I'm going to be uh, launching that on my Patreon first, where there's going to be sort of like director's cut and, you know, behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. But then the the podcast for other people will go live on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, called 
we don't talk about that, <laughs> which is um, which is my take on New Zealand because I think nobody knew where New Zealand was until Lord of the Rings, and then suddenly they have in their idea that in their heads that it's just glaciers and forests and <laughs> elves and you know. Um, and interestingly enough, before Lord of the Rings, most New Zealand cinema was dark, mm-hmm. bleak, and it just had people living on their own in horrible conditions and just uh, <laughs> that kind of. The uh, Sam Neill actually did a, a a documentary about New Zealand cinema before Lord of the Rings. It was called The Cinema of Unease, and um, so what we we don't talk about that is going to be talking about some of the horrible things that have happened in New Zealand and it combines creepy and history. So, you know, it's <laughs> sounds, in my wheelhouse. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's pretty much everything that I wanted to ask and, and discuss right now. If we could, uh, just, where can, where can people find you and, and your stuff? Well, if you go to pjballantine.com or ministry of peculiar occurrences.com, you will find links to, Wherever I am, I'm everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, Ding. Twitter, you know. Ding! Hold on. There, there we go. There it is. <laughs> I, know, I need to get one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, but you did mention your Patreon, so if we can get a shout-out, what's your, where's your Patreon? Uh, it's pjballantine.com. Patreon.com slash pjballantine. Ding! Do it. Ding! There, there we go. I love Pip. Yeah, Pip's pretty awesome. She is. If she could narrate my life, my life would be that much better. Yeah. Like, so much better. There would be so much sass. Yes. Yeah. I think I need to lie down. I think you probably should. You think we should just call the episode here? Well, no, we should call it episode 54. Episode 54. All right, I think that means we should probably be done now, but we do still have to remind them what they can do for us. Oh, they can do things for us. That's right. They, they can do things for us. Like, they can they like, can go on iTunes. And they can go on iTunes and find us in the, the podcast store. I mean, the podcast is free. It's awesome that way. But, you know, they could go in there and say, leave us stars and a review. That, All the stars and the best reviews. Yeah, reviews that say nice things about us. It helps other people to find us, helps us to grow. and I don't think you realize how much these things really do help, guys. So please, please, by all means. Go just, do the thing. Yeah, I'll, even if all you do is say, I love the show. That's all it takes. Just you know, click on some stars, write just a few words, or if you want to get verbose, do it. But Do it. Do it. It is beyond appreciated. We might read your review on the podcast. I don't know if we if want to hurt anybody enough. that way. <laughs> um, and there are other things they can do. Yeah. They could go to patreon.com slash afgrappin. If, you know, for some people, just leaving a review isn't enough. They need to leave us money. Money is nice. Money helps us with hosting fees. Um Equipment fees. Equipment fees. Yeah. Honestly, hosting fees are the big one right now. But more importantly, it would let us become a paying market. That is one of our goals is to even just a small amount be able to pay contributors. We don't want to just give you exposure. We'd like to actually compensate you for all the hard work you put into giving us content. But we're not made of money. No, we're not. And if you do become a Patreon backer, that's that's not just you giving us money. You do get extra stuff in return. For example... Physical swag. But more importantly, Let's get you can't... No, we're not going Olivia Newton-John right now. Oh, okay. No, our Patreon backers get a couple of extra things. They get, number one, 
sometimes early access to episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've actually gotten, gotten, um, my processes under a little bit more control. I've got more time to do things. So I drop episodes sometimes as much as a week in advance. Yep. You could get your podcast dose early, guys. Yeah. But also, what's coming up soon? Our Patreon backer exclusive episode. Yeah, our, we do one of these a year, and they are solely for our backers. The, I don't want to say normal people, but, you know, the, the, the normal people, they don't get access to it. You only get to hear this episode if you are a backer. And it include this year's is going to include an all-new main ingredient story. Mm-hmm. Who wrote that, by the way? I did. Woo! As well as a couple of other segments that will never show up in the regular episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to find out what that's about, as little as $1 an episode goes a long way and gets you access to that. So go do the thing. Please. And thank you. Yes. Now, if you want physical swag without having to, you know... Go have, through the Patreon thing. Yeah, without, without you know, dedicating yourself to so many dollars an episode. Mm-hmm. If you want to just throw money at us and get something for yourself, we have our swag shop. Yeah. Shop.spreadshirt.com slash... The Melting Podcast. And you can get aprons. Mugs. Mugs. Buttons. T-shirts. Buttons. With our adorable cartoon faces on them. It's pretty awesome, guys. It is. And the the proceeds, again, they just get sunk right back into the show. Most of that does go straight to hosting fees. Hosting fees, production, quality. Yeah. Yeah. So all those things would be a great help. But if you're not made of money like we're not, you know what? That, what else they could do? What else could they do? They could give us some nice, cheap words. Yeah, it doesn't cost anything to send us words. Yeah, like like writing stuff, like Stoke the Fire stories like we had today. And and, and, and then you know what they should do with it once they've written it? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know what they should do? We're not there yet. Because we have to tell them what to write about. Good. If you want to write a Stoke the Fire story, you do need to do it on one of our open prompts. And right now we have two. We always have two open prompts. Now, prompt number 13, this is the last month that this prompt will be open. This one will be closing. On December 31st, heading into 2018. This is prompt number 13, lucky 13. Where did the corn go? I I love that prompt. I do, too. That's a good one. That's gotten us some good stories. It really has. And the other one that is open right now is prompt number 14. A rash of people have just entered the emergency room. All of them exhibiting superpowers. So 1,500 words or fewer. And write up a little story based on one or more of those prompts. More. And send it to us. Uh, you can go to themeltingpodcast.com slash submissions to find out how to submit to us. Mm-hmm. They could also send us main ingredient stories, which is on any topic up to 5,000 words. And you'll get on the show more than likely. Yep, send send us haikus, send us songs, send us funny things you want us to read out loud. We've had somebody send us a webcomic that got yep. posted on our site. It was phenomenal. Yep. It was based it was the it was why was anybody it was the mailman prompt. Why mm-hmm. is everybody afraid of the mailman? That was hilarious. So you don't have to just send us things within those two no. parameters. You no. know, you, you, you can send us a lot of other things and we would love to do it. We'll find a way to use it. Like, we actually, and I have to shout this out because one of the coolest things happened this week. We received an email from a fan in Denmark. Denmark! Yes, and this fan, 
has told has he said in his email that he is an aspiring writer. Ooh. But he doesn't have a whole lot of time, mm-hmm. which I completely understand. But he has so many ideas, he wanted to share some with us. So he gave us a list of like 20 new potential prompts. Yeah. That some of these are going to get used. So Nick from Denmark, thank you so much. Hi, Nick. Yes. We love you back. Yeah, very much. Love from the United States. Love from the Melting Podcast crew and the Disaster Kitchen in general. That actually does make you an official word chef. You contributed to the show. I need Woo. to get his name up on the site. Yep. But uh, but yeah, so you can sit, you could contribute anything if you are an author and you want an interview. Contact us. I'd be yeah. I, I would love to set that up. Um, I'm happy to get on the Skype line. Um, I do have a little seasoning set up. I'm going to be re- uh, recording with somebody in December. So we've got somebody else that's going to be coming on. So we always love putting you guys out there. Send that's us the whole point of yeah. this show. Yeah. So contact us if you if you need ideas of what to do. Contact us. Go on our Facebook group. Just you know, yell at us. We like things. Tweet. Tweet. Tweet at us. Tweet. 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 Yeah. Oh, sicky. You need to go take more meds and lay down. I do. I do. So anyway, send us stuff like Alka Seltzer. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek.